We are in the midst of a climate emergency. We cannot afford to continue damaging our environment. And the UK is experiencing its hottest ever day after the Met Office issued a red extreme heat warning in an area stretching between London, Manchester. Well, soaring temperatures are still hitting most of Europe. There are wildfires in Portugal and Spain. And the Drought has been declared in many parts of England in the last few hours, following the driest July in the country since 1935. The recent heat wave and lack of rainfall have led to low water levels in many of the UK's canals. The historic and deadly heat wave continues in Europe as well. In fact, there are fires in and around London burning tonight. Fires rage either side of the Thames. More and more people are waking up to the harsh reality that faces the future of our young. And we've seen it with the latest round of Labour and Conservative Party conferences, where environment was a big policy for one of our leading parties. An energy bills crisis facing millions of families, an energy security crisis and the climate crisis. I say to you, these emergencies demand the boldest of leadership. These emergencies demand an energy policy for the people and for the planet. This is vastly different to these conferences a decade ago. Politicians are starting to realise that they need to be environmentally savvy to get elected. The UK needs to make significant efforts to decarbonise its transport network. How? Well, one way to do this is limiting UK-based aviation. Flying is the most environmentally harmful modes of transport, with forecasts predicting that aviation will become one of the largest emitting sectors of carbon by 2050 if the current trends continue. Alternatively, travelling by train is seven times more environmentally friendly than flying. I'm Elisa Anwar, and on this episode, we'll be analysing how we can make a safer environment for our future generations. What if we took trains instead of planes? What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation. The average flight within the UK emits 128 kilograms of carbon dioxide. This is the equivalent to driving 710 kilometres in a petrol car or washing a load of laundry at 40 degrees every two days for an entire year. Now, you may be thinking that flying is quicker. Well, for two-thirds of journeys within Britain, taking the train instead of flying adds only 30 minutes to the journey time and this figure doesn't take into account the time it takes for many to commute to and from the airport. If we factor this in, we might find that travelling by train is actually faster. Now, another one of the big obstacles is cost. Currently, within the UK, VAT and fuel duty exemptions awarded to the aviation sector have driven down the price of domestic flights to the extent that almost two-thirds of domestic flight tickets are cheaper than their rail alternative. And I'm sure that many of us are aware how expensive domestic trains are, just now, I've had a look at a train ticket from London to Manchester in two days' time, and the prices are ranging from £75 to £150 one way. That's a lot of money. We're living in a cost-of-living crisis. Can you really blame people for travelling by plane? But with environmental concerns growing by the minute for our future generations, what do young people feel about rail and aviation travel? 
I'm joined by Isabel and Aquiemi Claude to find out more. Isabel, we'll start with you. How concerned do you think young people are for the environment compared to older generations? I think for young people, of course, um, we're obviously very concerned. We've grown up um, learning about climate change in schools that the older generation may not have necessarily done. So it's kind of always been a part of our identity and, um, you know, growing up. Um, But I do think definitely there are some older generations people who are also very concerned um, in my work I work with a lot of people who are older than me but they're still you know extremely concerned I think that it's really an opportunity for us to work together definitely um, but then definitely as a young person considering what's going on now I mean in Britain um, in, we're in October and it's extremely warm um, you know which is just a bit scary we're obviously living the reality of climate change but also all across the world in you know Pakistan or the flooding um, we're really already living it so if it's this bad now what's it going to be like in 30 40 years time when we're you know still want to be living but older generations aren't you know <laughs> aren't going to be so you know obviously it's a bigger worry for younger people definitely the older generation are concerned but they don't really have the ideas if that makes sense in regards to innovation of actions because they're more on the fact of informing others and of course there's that difference between the older generation to the youth who make bold actions to get attention and I think some of them have lived through it made their actions in their time but it's kind of like the years have evolved and because of how the years have evolved it's kind of changed the mindset of individuals so they kind of hope that you could say after a while a person may get it to take action but we would feel that we would need to get the person's attention to take action because we don't feel like we're being listened to. I think that's a really interesting point because you know I I agree that Isabel said that a lot of older generations are they are concerned but I think for the younger generation that's going to be our lived reality in another you know 10 20 years we're going to have to go through it and I think that there is a little difference in having to go through that and having to maybe just think about the future but know that it doesn't impact you and a question for both of you what what do you feel about the government's or different political leaders approach to climate change so far I, I mean it's interesting COP27 is now really in the news especially with our prime minister I think the problem with the government at the moment is that nothing's being done quicker and quickly enough. Um, I know Rishi Sunak has promised he's going to be committed to um, net 2050, but um, net zero 2050. But you know that's a very long time away. We need to be acting right now. You know things we need to be changing dramatically now. This, I think, you know, in things like COP, a lot of decisions are made, but they're sort of decisions in 20 years time. Um, we don't have the time to you know be messing around thinking about it we need to make you know decisions and we need to make laws changes you know quickly in order to really make a difference and I think you know that's the key issue. I couldn't agree more and I also feel that with the recent UN climate conference and said how the time has run out it is time for our COP summits are talking about actions now and of course changing behaviour. I think what I am concerned about is this kind of war narrative, which seems to get more of the focus than actual climate change or inequality within our society, because these are such important topics that really need to be highlighted. And I feel it's the kind of 
you could say like next on the shopping list when it needs to be the first on the shopping list to be taken seriously. Travelling by train is seven times more environmentally friendly than domestic flights within Great Britain, roughly. Uh, Yet the government are placing many VAT and fuel duty exemptions to the aviation sector, which sort of incentivises travelling by plane rather than train. Yeah, I just I think it's completely outrageous that, um, you know, travelling by plane is cheaper than travelling by train when, as you said, um, it's so much better for the environment. Um, I just think it's completely ridiculous. I think especially as we're living in a cost of living crisis as a young person, you know, if you want to go somewhere, but you're faced with two different price options, even if you really want to um, choose the environmentally friendly option, it can be really tempting to choose the cheaper one because, you know, we've got so many struggles at the moment paying our bills and everything. Um, but I think the government has a role to be incentivizing people to choose the environmentally friendly option. It's a priority. We're living in a climate emergency um, and that just needs that needs to be made. And what are the downsides to rail travel? I, I know, as well mentioned, cost of living and money. Um, and I think it's really easy for us to say, well, if rail travel is environmentally more friendly than plane travel, then why aren't people just going by rail? So, so what are the downsides to it? I think at the moment in Britain, our trains are so unreliable. Um, I know that if I want to go somewhere, I'd have to leave sort of a few hours. If it was, you know, an uh, urgent appointment, I definitely wouldn't be able to just rely on the train making it. There's been so many times where it's taken me hours longer to get there. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that's the key thing for me. It's just it's not that convenient. I guess also with the amount of rail strikes we're having at the moment as well, that kind of feeds into the idea of this just not being very reliable. Um, Aquayemi Claude, what do you think? Um, I can give the perspective from a disability point of view because they do find it hard to get around you know places and to be able to commute with their elements of OCD or Pacific elements that may be challenges. Thank you for sharing that and I am interested if you're if you feel comfortable to share more um, do you feel as someone who has a disability there are like differences when it comes to plane travel versus train travel and what, what would you like to see then in in our rail services just from your perspective? I think from what I've heard is the importance of accessibility, the importance of, I think, hygiene. I think, you know, we've got places like Japan where it's so clean. And for me, I'm really quite, um, I found that difficult, especially in the factor of um, my own concerns with crowds as well. So I think, you know, we need places where there's not too many crowds. And I think the option where, you know, we are able to travel by, car but able to travel with um assistance and these options that can be accessible for people with disability it's still got a way to go in being inclusive and do you find it's more inclusive than plane travel or is it just both are hindered i think plane travel is much more inclusive than rail what would you both like to see the government do to maybe help incentivise rail travel um, Isabel? I think there definitely needs to be more investment in um, train travel I don't know whether it needs to be nationalised but I think that could be one option that would really drive the cost down because um, I think that's just the key problem at the moment is is the fact that it well it's one of the key problems that, it, that it's so expensive um, and it, one way to do that would either be just government investment um, you know paying the, um, the workers properly so that they don't go on strike um, and like I said you know make sure to be hiring people 
um, you know, so so they don't feel they have to go on strike because obviously that's you know a key reason why it's so unreliable at the moment. Um, obviously, it's not you know their fault. They're completely in, entitled to, and I feel like if you're being underpaid, that um, you know that's what what you should be doing. Um, and yeah, it just I, we just need more investment in it to really incentivize people to want to use it because you know we put environmental problems at at the top of the agenda. That's what needs to be incentivized. And I think we need. What I'm very aware of, and I get inundated with these emails of like interesting information, but also tragic stories, is the gap between the train and the platform. I'm aware that there's been a big statistic where amount of people who are blind would feel at risk of boarding on the train. And also, I think there's that importance of investment, importance of putting the living rage up that people feel that they are able to work to able to live that is so paramount and the importance of still having human operation and not really relying heavily on robot systems and the future of technology which is still very um it's wavy sometimes because it can't be a guarantee that it's going to be functioning at full capacity If argues that the government should introduce incentives to travel by rail rather than flying. And it can be done. So much money was spent bailing out the aviation industry in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. This money could have been spent on developing a more sustainable transport system that is fairer to future generations. And other countries have done it. For example, in France, domestic flights that can be travelled by train in under two and a half hours have been banned. If believes that this ban in the UK could reduce domestic aviation admissions by 33%. So let's hear from the author of the report to find out more. I'm joined by John Hobby to see what he has to say. So there's been a great deal of inequality in the money that the government have directed towards the aviation industry versus our rail services. So could you maybe talk me through and talk our listeners through some of the inequalities there? So um, in when we're talking about in absolute terms, you know, sort of just the sheer numbers of the subsidies, um, the government subsidy for the rail industry is actually bigger than for, for domestic aviation. Um, however, once you factor in the number of people who take, you know, who are taking uh, domestic flights versus rail journeys within the UK, the subsidy per passenger is so much bigger. Um, so back in 2017, uh, the government provided a subsidy of 6.4 billion for the rail industry uh, to support the 1.7 billion passengers who um, who travelled by rail that year. So that works out overall to a subsidy of about £4 per passenger. Whereas in the report, uh, when it comes to domestic aviation, we found that the government subsidises domestic aviation to the tune of around £470 million. Um, that was in 2018-19. That works out to around £22 per passenger uh, in that year. So that's a difference of around you know five five times more. Um, a five times larger subsidy for domestic aviation than the rail uh, industry. So why isn't the government helping the rail industry to the same extent as it helps with the aviation industry? I mean, I think part of it is obviously because, you know, sort of the required infrastructure for rail travel is just, you know, much more extensive and much more expensive. Uh, trains, you need hundreds of kilometres of track uh, and stations in very expensive city centres. So, you know, that's really vast and expensive um, infrastructure. Uh, whereas airports require relatively much less investment, you know, sort of two airports on the outside of cities. So sort of, I think governments are kind of scared away by that big upfront investment. And I think this is just sort of 
it's it's an example of sort of pennywise pound foolishness um, that's been pervasive in government for in, in recent decades. You know, so if we haven't invested in our future uh, just because it saves us a few quid in the present. Um, and so, sort of, yeah, it's, it's another example of failing to think in the long term and a lack of intergenerational analysis uh, in policy. Um, a great example of this is um, sort of the government has been talking about levelling up for years. You know, uh, it was, it's, it's been sort of one of the main government policies uh, under, under the recent Conservative government. Uh, but earlier this year, the government um, scrapped Northern Powerhouse Rail and the Eastern Leg of HS2, uh, which w- would have been two really you know, meaningful policies to spread opportunities to the north of England. Well, I guess the government would counter that and say that they are thinking about the future. So let's talk about the Jet Zero strategy. So this is a report released by the UK government that's meant to address rapidly growing emissions from the UK's aviation sector. And they aim to make it net zero compliant by 2050, which I think sounds really promising. But could you maybe talk our listeners through the report and explain why it isn't as great as we think it is? Um, so as you say, um, it sets out, uh, it plans for all of UK aviation to be net zero by 2050. Uh, it plans for UK airports and all of domestic aviation to be net zero by 2040. Um, so these these net zero goals, um, sort of the plan is to achieve them um, with uh, sort of three key uh, low carbon aviation technologies, hydrogen aviation, sustainable aviation fuel, uh, and carbon capture and offsetting. It also sets out, um, you know, increased investment uh, in the in the technologies I've just I've just named, um, and sketches out a sort of a, a rough industrial strategy to foster collaborate uh, collaboration between the government, industry, and academia to uh, increase innovation uh, in sustainable aviation technologies. Uh, however, once you take a, a little closer look uh, at the review. Um, which we did at IF, we felt that it was overly reliant on uh, sort of very optimistic assumptions uh, and therefore fails to recognise the real trade-offs that lie at the heart of decarbonising our transport network. Um, so one, one of these you know, overly optimistic assumptions is the rate of improvement um, in, in, sort of traditional, um, in traditional aviation technologies. Um, the report sets out a 2% improvement per year, whereas um, sort of other sources say a one4 percent improvement per year um, is a much more sort of realistic figure. That sounds like a small difference, you know, sort of half a percent, 0.6 of a percent, but over time that really compounds very quickly to be a large difference. Um, another such criticism uh, is that it's heavily reliant on, on offsetting, uh, offsetting um, which are typically, you know, sort of quite inaccurate and easily manipulated. This report leads the government to conclude that the aviation industry can continue to expand without really any active decarbonisation initiatives, because they say that a development in low carbon technologies and future innovations will help clean up the mess. But I guess all of their proposed technologies are either like ridiculously expensive or they wouldn't actually like actively reduce emissions by as much as they're saying that they would. So it's almost as though they're gambling our future on these unproven technologies. You use the word optimistic assumptions there, and I, I think that's very much true. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. Even central to the plan uh, is is offsetting, right? So they, they can always just say any emissions, you know, any shortcomings in this, oh, we'll just offset it. It's interesting because there's like no mention in your report. You say that there's like no mention of limiting the growth of passenger numbers. It, it actually, it looks as though like passenger numbers are going to increase, right? Yeah, um, the report um, 
plans for you know sort of a regular year-on-year growth uh, in passenger numbers and flights both in the international and domestic aviation sectors uh, and because of these optimistic assumptions completely um, you know completely um, ignores so-called demand management policy when people talk about demand man- management policy they're talking about things like uh, introducing taxation on aviation kerosene um, and you know introducing VAT on um, on aviation tickets uh, and what those kind of policies do is they introduce some of the unpriced uh, environmental costs of aviation into the ticket price, um, which would actually boost sustainable aviation technologies, because these would be you know, something like a kerosene tax. You wouldn't need to pay that if you were using sustainable aviation fuel or hydrogen, um, you know, hi- hi- hydrogen um, technologies. So these demand management policies would actually uh, boost innovation in um, you know, would would make sustainable aviation technologies more competitive and would therefore boost innovation uh, in sustainable aviation technologies, in my opinion. I think my big worry is, is that, like, if this plan does fail, which it might, it might not, but say it does fail, we're going to kind of find ourselves in a worse situation than if they just sorted something out and pursued some active policies rather than having this passive stance. Yeah, it, exactly. You know, so it's that that age age old that age old adage um, that prevention is better than cure, right? Why don't we try and deal with the problem now um, by you know sort of actually properly taxating and regulating aviation, um, limiting its growth, um, you know, sort of to to slightly more more sustainable levels, um, and you know to to reduce emissions in the here and now and stop you know stop the problem from getting worse in the future. What would you say to those who argue that air travel is simply cheaper and faster? I guess there's two elements to that question. So I don't know if you want to break that down. I would disagree uh, on both points. When it comes to price, uh, we find in the report that when you make a fair comparison between tickets booked uh, equally far in advance and when you account for uh, access costs to and from the airport, there's actually very little difference uh, between air and rail costs within the UK. Um, and in cases where aviation is potentially slightly cheaper, uh, it's because of what economists call uh, negative externalities. Um, so these are unpriced costs that the producer or consumer of a good don't have to pay for, uh, which makes um, the good in question artificially cheaper than its true social cost, um, which means that aviation is expensive. It's just not you that's paying for it. It's future generations uh, through the environmental damage that's, that's being done. Um- I think that's actually really interesting, the point that you had about commuting like to and from the airport, because I I would have thought that rail travel was sometimes like triple the price. Like it's, it's extortionate rail travel. But then I guess that sort of ignores the fact that people don't live at the airport and even a taxi or a train then to get to the airport means that collectively actually a flight, a domestic flight probably ends up being more expensive, if not equal to a rail ticket. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is a, an important sort of you know misconception that we try to address uh, in the report. Um, and then, so in terms of time, um, many studies have shown that high-speed rail is competitive with aviation uh, on journeys up to a thousand kilometers. Um, so, in countries with with good rail rail infrastructure, uh, it's really simply not true that short and medium haul flights um, are quicker than than the rail alternative. Uh, a good example of this uh, is in China, which, you know, they, they've got 38,000 kilometres of high-speed rail in the past few decades. 
uh, which has really, really eaten away at the demand for domestic aviation. Um, unfortunately, the UK is kind of lagging behind most of uh, Western Europe and, and other leaders on, um, on high-speed rail infrastructure. Uh, but fortunately for us, you know, we live in quite a small country um, and we do have quite an extensive network of conventional rail uh, that, we've, that we've upgraded to run at relatively high speeds, uh, which means that rail can still compete with many, uh, with many of the main domestic routes um, by, by air. Um, so our report finds that six of the top 10 domestic routes uh, were of comparable time by rail uh, and air when you account for the, the total journey times. Um, so as, as we were kind of talking about earlier, people often forget about the price to get from the city centre or from where they live to the airport. It's also true of time as well. Um, so often, you know, airports are quite far away from the city and take an hour plus to get to. And they also have uh, much longer waiting times than, than the rail than, the, than at the train station. Uh, you know, passing through security and uh, waiting, you know, waiting for your gate on the waiting at your gate on the other side. I think also like it all boils down to how much the government wants to invest in high speed rail as well. Like already you're saying that you disagree and say that rail can be cheaper and faster. But I think if the government just dedicated more time and investment, we could make that even better than it already is. Yeah, I 100 percent agree with that. You know, so really it is it's a matter of um of political will and where the government's priorities are. All of the findings of IF's report strongly encourage the government to actively put in place policies which incentivise train travel. For example, the introduction of rail miles programmes that work similar to air miles, or more transparent ticketing programmes to get better deals, the prioritisation of upgrading rail travel from the east to the west. Also, one has to ask whether government ministers always need to fly to meet each other. COVID's proved that Zoom meetings can happen. It's not impossible. Other countries have done it, so why can't we? The government should put its obligation to lower emissions at the heart of all policy-making decisions, in the interests of young people and in the interests of our future. Fighting for equality amongst current and future generations is something that we should all strive towards and is central to the work of IF. If any of the topics in discussion in this month's podcast have caught your attention, then head over to www.if.org.uk where IF have conducted incredible research into the topic. Or follow the Intergenerational Foundation on Twitter, Facebook and even Instagram. There you'll be able to find our incredible report, Trains Over Planes. What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF the Intergenerational Foundation.